0: Hello and welcome to episode 61 of ERRX. Also, happy Pharmacist Month to all of my pharmacy listeners. During the month of October, I wanted to focus on a topic that's extremely important and one that pharmacists can and should have a big role in within their hospital setting. That topic is ICU sedation. Recently, I was lucky enough to be invited to speak on two of my favorite podcasts, Farm So Hard and Walking Home from the ICU. In each episode, we discussed ICU sedation and we dissected the guidelines on how to manage intubated patients in the ICU. In part one of the sedation series, I'll play the episode that I was featured on on the Farm So Hard podcast. In this episode, Jimmy Pruitt and I talked about the intubation process, some common causes and consequences of pain in ICU patients, how to monitor pain and sedation. And then we talked about some pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic properties of some of the most commonly used agents in the ED and ICU
1: settings. Enjoy. This is Jim Pruitt, and you listen to another episode of the Farm So Hard podcast. <laughs> So I farm so hard, the employees want to find me And then want to hire me What's a hundred K to a guy like me? Could you please remind me? Farm so hard, this ain't easy Working late nights, you best believe me A grades can only go Ace Never want to see another B unless I'm Jay-Z Farm so hard, let's get paid Let's get paid Welcome to another episode of the Farm Soul Heart Podcast. I'm your host today, Jim Pruitt, aka Farm D&ED, and, and we have another special episode, and this is gonna be for all of our nurses that's out there in the ER, and ICU, all of our providers, our pharmacists that's intubating patients all the time. This is called the Just Propofol For Me Please and post-intubation sedation. But again, guys, you know how I do. I'm not going to sit here and flap my gums because I'm not the smart person today. I have a special <laughs> guest that's coming from very far from Charleston, South Carolina. Go ahead and introduce yourself and tell them what you do.
0: Jimmy, thanks so much for having me on your podcast, man. I'm a big fan and, and you know, hopefully your listeners will take something from this. Um, I'll probably learn something from you as well today. Uh, but my name is Adis Carrick. I am a uh, ED and ICU clinical pharmacist in Minnesota. And um, I also have my own podcast, which I'll have to have Jimmy come on to one of these days. And that's the ERRX podcast. That's ER-RX. So I love talking about all things medicine, trying to help out all the pharmacists, all the providers,
1: all the nurses, so we can all practice at the top of our license. Absolutely. It was just great to have you on. I saw what you was doing. I said, I got to get this guy on because he's like killing it right now. I got like, freaking 60 episodes in a half the time. This guy's <laughs> really killing it right now. And really wanted to talk about something that we see often. And I thought he was perfect for this because you have that special role that I think is coming more and more common, that EDICU you know, position where you can be one place at one time and be at another, and you can follow these patients. So you're one of the only people that actually gets to see a patient gets intubated down in ED and then maybe at another time be rounding on that same patient at another time. So you get to see a lot of that that mix. So I really want to get into talking about this. And can you just like from your perspective, why do you think this topic is important? Because I think sometimes when we have residents and we have different people and learners with us, they don't think it's as important of a topic. But can you talk about you know the importance of post-intubation sedation? Absolutely. Yeah. I feel like, you know, pharmacists, they,
0: they think some things are more important than, than others and vice versa. And I think for pharmacists, one of the biggest reasons why this is important, um, especially in the ED and the ICUs in general, is they're so pharmacist heavy. And, you know, we just love nerding out about medications and how they work and their durations and their pharmacokinetics. But you know the overarching reason why this is so important, at the end of the day, it's all about doing right by our patients. You know, We want to make sure our patients are comfortable while at the same time not giving them too much medications, which will actually prolong their hospital course and lead to worse outcomes. So I think it's a very important topic because I don't know about you, but I didn't actually even learn about sedatives and Propofol and Presidex and fentanyl infusions in pharmacy school. And I don't know how much of that is in PA and P school or medical school either. So it's one of those things that we just don't have a lot of exposure to, but it is just so incredibly important. Um, as you know, it's important enough to have, you know, multiple guidelines released on this topic and numerous studies about how do we sedate our patients, how do we do best by our patients. Just a couple examples, you know, one of the first ones that came out was the uh, PAD or PAD guidelines in 2013, which is the um, guidelines for the management of pain, agitation, and delirium in adult patients that was um, published in the Critical Care Medicine Journal. And since that time, they've updated that in 2018. They actually added uh, sleep hygiene, delirium, and immobility into those guidelines and made them the PADIS or PADIS guidelines. And I think in the future, we're just going to keep going and going with this whole aspect of what's the best way to sedate our patients? Should we move them? Uh, How do we treat and prevent delirium? And it's just so incredibly
1: important for optimal patient outcomes. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more with that. And the one thing that I, I think about is I always just picture the process after we intubate a patient. And I say, if I was that person, what would I want right now? And right. we always, have, we joke around with our nursing staff and our, our, our physician colleagues, and, and they always say, hey, Jimmy, if I ever come in here, you better do <laughs> yes. X, Y, and Z. And I, yes. think it's, I think it's interesting because that same thing doesn't always translate to what what our standard of care is for, for the patient at times. So I just think it's interesting. And the data is not super strong one way versus the other, but I think everyone has their idea of what they would like for them. But before we get too deep into some of this, we may have some people who have never been bedside for intubation. They may not have ever seen the entire process. So just very briefly, can you describe the intubation process for our people out there? Absolutely. So for those people
0: listening, you know, I always recommend just clicking up a YouTube video, it takes two to three minutes, probably even less if you have an experienced intubator. But basically the intubation process is just basically shoving a plastic tube down someone's trachea to make sure that we can inflate their lungs Um, So this procedure is kind of the bread and butter for ED providers. And I think more and more, even ICU providers are getting to do this, uh, not to mention anesthesiologists and CRNAs who do this daily. And this procedure is indicated for patients that are in respiratory failure, so hypoxic or hypercapnic respiratory failure, or any patient that's apneic, any other patients that have a reduced level of consciousness, which we define as a GCS of less than or equal to 8 Um, Or just any of those patients that have a rapid change in their mental status, any trauma patients, if you can imagine anyone that has an injury somewhere along their airway where you need to protect that airway, Um, and just any other patients that have a high risk of aspiration, again, where we don't want anybody to aspirate into the lungs, which can lead to infection and all sorts of badness. And again, you know, unfortunately, pharmacists don't get to do this procedure. I wish we could because it seems so gratifying. Um, but the best way that you can actually just get an image of this is to go watch a video on YouTube. It'll take you a minute or two. Um, and it's very, very
1: cool, interesting stuff. Yeah, Absolutely. It's just one of those things where I now, if I have learners, I will sit behind attending and like mm-hmm. with, with the, with the, with and just like, look at the VL and just see yep. the, the tube going down the course. And I'm sitting there. It's like, this is just so beautiful. It's this beautiful. is so wonderful. It's beautiful
0: and also horrendously, <laughs> uh, it can be horrendous for the patient and, you know, yeah. we'll get into to sedation and <laughs> I know we're not talking about uh, rapid sequence intubation, but uh, I mean, you, patients are obviously, I should have mentioned this, they're not awake during this procedure. Mm-hmm. We give them sedatives to kind of knock them out. They hopefully don't remember or recall it. Uh, but it's definitely something that would be pretty
1: traumatic if you were awake for it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, I, I had a few providers when I was back at Augusta. So shout out to Dr. Schwartz uh, that performed intubation on himself. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> shout out to someone. that like, like is I amazing. I said, Yes. I've actually
0: heard stories of people that do that in their med schools or in residencies. I have, I don't think I know anybody that's done it. So maybe somebody (laughs) will correct me when I go back to work in a couple of days, but
1: (laughs) it's just, it's just interesting. But I I think about the intubation process, then I I get to where uh, I get to the pain part. And I think some people forget, Like these are usually patients that are in acute distress before the procedure. We place a very that's like we place a, a water bottle down our throat that, that is going to cause potential physical trauma to the airway itself. And then we move on to doing other things. So there's, our, there's some also some common causes of pain in the patient while they're in the ED or if they're going to be in the ICU. Um, can you talk about these, these common causes of pain? Because I don't think people uh, really understand what pain can do to people and what some of the downstream effects will be.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, like you said, so first of all, just getting a tube down your throat is is a little traumatic and and can be painful, uh, especially depending on the experience of the person actually doing the procedure. But then, you know, besides that, um our patients can be in a lot of pain for a lot of different reasons. You know, the most obvious patient that's in pain is somebody who you're intubating after a trauma, so car accident fall from a building, what have you. I mean, these patients are going to be in pain with or without the tube. Um, But then our patients that maybe don't come in as traumas that just simply need intubation to protect their airway, or maybe they have a really bad asthma or COPD exacerbation. Some of the things that we do to them throughout their course of hospitalization is painful. And we have data that shows that things like putting central lines in or just a whole host of other, other procedures that we do for these patients does cause pain, um, which is unfortunate because there's data out there that says that 80% of our patients that are in an ICU experience some sort of pain. And about 80% of those patients identify pain as their most traumatic memory of their ICU stay. Um, again, which is just very, very traumatic Um, six months after an ICU admission, I've read some data that 40% of those patients still recalled pain as their most traumatic memory. And then 20 of those 40% have a very high risk of developing PTSD because of this. Um, and you can imagine, you know, for example, putting in chest tubes or taking out chest tubes can be very painful. And guidelines and expert committees have said that anytime we're doing any type of procedure that could be painful for a patient we should give them preemptive analgesia. But the fact of the matter is less than 25% of patients actually get it. Yeah. I
1: think you you really hit some key points there. And I want, want to emphasize the fact that we can cause PTSD when we're supposed to be the people that are saving lives is very interesting. Um, the fact that we can change the the quality of life for individuals, the fact that the untreated pain actually decreases the immune system. So if a patient right. comes in for sepsis, we don't treat their pain from what we're causing then we have that entire issue. And mm-hmm. I like to commonly sit back and when I'm teaching my residents and my, my learners, I let them see the entire process of what's happening because the intubation of itself is one thing. And then we, we see what happens, what it looks like you place a Foley that's right. that, Yeah. So that's <laughs> yeah. not cool. And then I yeah. go and ask my providers, Hey, I'm getting ready to run, you know, a uh, norepinephrine infusion. I need a central line. And I see them go and sometimes successfully get it under the first try. Other times right. they're poking left side of the groin, right side mm-hmm. of the groin, up top. So this multiple times patients are getting stuck with needles and that's just the nature of what we do. And we have to save lives. And right. I'm watching all of this, and they have broken bones. And then the next thing you get from an ray get from a, a trauma, is an X-ray. We're moving that patient in an mm-hmm. uncomfortable position, and then we're gonna mm-hmm. do it again in CT. <laughs> so you get, you basically get stabbed five or six times. You get more access. <laughs> you get moved around yeah. with your broken bones, and all these things are horrible. So when someone tells me Jimmy, the patient's not in pain. They're fine. Mm-hmm. They're fine. I want to say that the data doesn't say that, and right. we may can improve patient outcomes by doing something so, so simple. So I'm super happy you brought up some of those stats because I I think it's important that we touch on those. And I think it's important that we, everyone who deals with this, and I think this episode is going to be great for everyone because we all deal with this frequently. Like yesterday, I did a SIM for four hours and we intubated every patient. I got down with the SIM. I went to the ED and a patient that was intubated there already. And we intubated three more patients that day. So it's just like, it's just something that commonly happens. Um, so I think that we should all be aware of the fact that, yes, propofol is a phenomenal drug. We'll talk about that. But mm-hmm. there's some other agents that you should use for analgesia. And I want you to go ahead and speak on some of those different agents that we can use for post-intubation analgesia. And just talk about really just the dosing and some of the kinetics of those drugs.
0: Sure, sure. So, you know, there's a lot of ways that we can manage pain. Uh, And you know, this isn't just made up by me, these are all very well known uh, things and you can find them in a bunch of different national and international guidelines. Uh, So the first thing that we use to manage pain, uh, specifically now, this is again, post intubation in your usually intubated patients in the ICU, is we use opioids. So opioids are recommended first class for any of that non neuropathic pain. Um, we do always want to do that multimodal analgesia that we learn about in school. It actually does come into play here, uh, where we want to use things like local anesthetics, NSAIDs, if possible, anticonvulsants like gabapentin and pregabalin for that neuropathic pain. And then we have some other agents like ketamine that are starting to, to grow in popularity. And then we always want to focus on the non-pharmacological interventions that have actually been proven at times to work better than opioids. So massage therapy, music, mobility, getting them in with PT and OT. Those are all very, very, very important. But yeah, um, you know, to your question, when we talk about specific opioids and their pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics, the first thing that I want to mention, and it's confusing to a lot of new providers, a lot of new pharmacists, a lot of new nurses, is that we have to remember that opioids do have sedative properties. You know, I hate to put things into a bucket of opioids are for pain, propofol is for sedation. Um, In this setting, especially when you're giving these high doses and continuous infusions, these opioids do have sedative properties. So please remember that. Um, And then just kind of going down, and I guess no particular order Uh, We have fentanyl. Again, this is for ICU patients specifically who are intubated. Uh, We usually, uh, again, adjust these doses for age, previous opioid exposure, and body weight. But the dose of fentanyl is anywhere between 0.25 to 0.5 mics per kilo, which ends up being about 25 to 75 micrograms. And if you're going to give that as a bolus, I would just give that iv Every 30 to 60 minutes. You may need it more frequently than that. Um, If you need to start a continuous infusion, we start anywhere between 25 mics per hour and then we can work up all the way to 200 plus micrograms per hour. So fentanyl is one that I like. Uh, We use it a lot in my ED. Um, It's got very good uh, pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics. The onset is about one to two minutes if you give it IV. And again, that duration of 30 to 60 minutes is about how frequently that we redose fentanyl. The one important thing to remember about fentanyl, though, is that with repeated dosing or prolonged infusions, it does have a much longer, what they call context-sensitive half-life, which can be up to five hours plus, and it's very unpredictable. So if you have somebody that's on a fentanyl infusion for many, many days, especially if they're obese or have some liver or kidney dysfunction or both, Um, you can stop that fentanyl and you're going to be thinking, well, why isn't my patient waking up? You know, I want to extubate. I want to check them out, see how they're doing. Well, that context sensitive half-life, is just so much more prolonged, um, where you might have to be off that drip for hours to see that patient start to wake up. Um, the only thing that I would say about fentanyl is that we have to use caution in any patients that, um, are at risk of serotonin syndrome, or any patients that come in as a, a tox case, so anybody that's overdosed on something because it does have serotonergic properties. And trust me, you don't want to be the team that starts a fentanyl infusion in the ED on somebody that might have overdosed on a serotonergic agent. You'll look, look pretty bad to the ICU team. So that's just one little caveat. If little we if we don't already fentanyl. look bad
1: enough, like it's not, <laughs> yeah, it's not enough. Exactly.
0: Then- Yeah, we're already getting made fun of all the time, like don't start fentanyl on somebody that might have some serotonergic drugs on board. Um, The next one uh, that we use from time to time is hydromorphone or dilaudid. Now, this one we usually think of as an alternate to fentanyl. Um, On the flip side, this one is good for patients that come in as tox overdoses or anybody that has potential serotonin syndrome because it does not have any serotonergic properties So that's kind of the main time I use it. Um, The dose here is about 0.2 to about one milligram IV, and we can give it every two to three hours. It does last a little bit longer than your fentanyl will. Um, It does have a slower onset of about five to 15 minutes, uh, but again, it has a longer duration of about four to five hours. Uh, With this one, we do just slightly have to adjust the dose for renal or hepatic dysfunction from time to time. Um, I don't know. Do you have any preference between fentanyl or, or dilaudid out in
1: uh, South Carolina? Or I, I guess for me, it's, it's a situation. So for me, mm-hmm. I can't override you know, hydromorphone. So it's harder for me to get and have to go to oh, places in order. So in my okay. ED, I can override fentanyl, but I can't, I can override fentanyl as a bolus, but I can't override fentanyl as an infusion. But when I go back to, mm-hmm. to Atlanta, I can override all of those. But for me, nine times out of 10, I like fentanyl because I want something to work right now. And I I don't want to wait because I know that by the time I get to get these medications, these patients will already be getting ready to undergo some type of procedure or or some type of movement. But I will say with with COVID, I've been able to see where hydromorphine may have its purpose. So I didn't have fentanyl as a a bolus and I had to start becoming more you know, creative. And if I didn't have an infusion, I say, okay, if I go ahead and load a patient up with hydromorphone right before, so for like pre-treatment, you know, we we don't really do that anymore, but I did it for pre-treatment so I can have a patient get one or two milligrams of hydromorphone and then they would get intubated. And I know I got myself, you know, at least in a couple hours of therapy and then we can redose them appropriately after all these major procedures were done. So I think when I don't have access to a longer acting, um, medication like an infusion. I can basically use my hydromorphone as a a bridge to uh, either a, something else or to be able to use that for two to three hours of therapy. I like that. That's a, yeah, that's a fantastic idea.
0: So it all depends on where you are and how fast you can get these drips. You know, where I work, we can override literally any medication. Um, and, and we do use Dilaudid from time to time too. It's about probably a 70, 30 split on provider preference. Um, starting these infusions is, you know, we'll talk a little bit about continuous infusions and the benefit versus risk of, of that. But all of my continuous infusions of opioids come from the IV pharmacy. So they all take an equal amount of time to get down to us, too, which is also something to to discuss. I don't know if anyone has any
1: premade bilatids or fentanyls in their EDs, but we do not. Yeah. So I have the premades in the actual OmniCell, but they can't be override. When I'm in mm-hmm. South Carolina, but when I go to Atlanta, I have the pre pre-mix infusions, and it's amazing to see the difference in practice. So mm-hmm. when I'm in, when I'm in Atlanta, we have our primary fitnom infusion first. We can bolus from the bag, so I can just get my nice. bag bolus immediately and continue the infusion. Which you know I trained that way, so of course I feel that that's a a reasonable option. But I realize mm-hmm. that there are some EDs across America, especially some of our smaller community community shops. They don't have any drips and some of them don't have, you know, hydromorphone. Some of mm-hmm. them, I kid you not, I was in a small <laughs> shop in central Florida and they did not have fentanyl. Wow. And I was just very confused. So I, <laughs> I, I I really wanted to shout out everyone who's managing all of these patients without any of these drugs. Yeah. yeah right. <laughs> this right. is insane.
0: Right. Yeah. And, you know, speaking of fentanyl and, and hydromorphone, there is obviously You know, one other one that we didn't talk about yet, and that's morphine. Morphine, I I personally don't use too much, and and my providers don't use it much either. As we all know, you know, it causes more histamine release, it causes some venodilation, hypotension, and then it has these metabolites that are actually uh, neurotoxic at high enough doses. So I consider this one a last line opioid the dose is anywhere between two to four milligrams IV every one to two hours, or you can do something similar to what Jimmy was saying, where you can give a higher dose. Uh, In his case, he was talking about dilaudid or hydromorphone, but you can give a higher dose of morphine of about four to eight milligrams. And then in that scenario, you can give it every three to four hours. And then you can start a continuous infusion anywhere between two, all the way up to 30 milligrams per hour. But again, it has a very long duration. It's got those active metabolites. The only time I really see morphine is, is outside of the setting of somebody who's intubated, you know, so it would be anyone that comes in with ACS or a heart attack, STEMI and STEMI, things like that.
1: I only see the, 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 really not even for my, uh, I have a really huge sickle cell population. Um, so, oh, sure. so here in, in in Charleston and in Atlanta, I have a huge population of patients that have sickle cell and, they don't even like morphine.
0: <laughs> so really? it's like,
1: so <laughs> really? no, no, no one likes it, but sometimes you, I have a few patients that requires 10 to 16 milligrams a dose of morphine. Right. But again, just for this particular topic uh, mm-hmm. for post-intubation sedation, it, that may be, it's just, it's not preferred for me. Um, mm-hmm. I particularly like the last agent we're gonna talk about for from a pain standpoint, to be honest, and I see sure. this growing tremendously. Can you talk about ketamine a little bit? you talking about ketamine special oh, yeah. K. <laughs> oh yeah.
0: So yeah, I like ketamine. It's definitely growing. Um, we, you know, this is a whole nother topic, but when we talk about RSI at my shop, we don't use ketamine too often to be honest. Um, but ketamine is a great drug, especially in the setting of uh, status epilepticus, for example, or as an adjunct to your opioids. And When we talk about ketamine, it has such a different mechanism of action than our opioids. It's a sedative that does have some analgesia, which we all know of. Uh, Usually you give a dose of about 0.1 to 1 mg per kg IV, and then you start a continuous infusion starting anywhere down low as 0.3 mg per kg per hour, all the way up to about 3 mg per kg per hour for sedation. It's got a very quick onset of about a minute. With bolus dosing, it lasts about five to 10 minutes, obviously longer if you start that continuous infusion. And you're right, I think more and more centers and more and more places are starting to see this. Um, At my site, we don't use it as much. Uh, We use it more for agitation, uh, pain, you know, really small doses, 10 to 20 milligrams for acute pain in patients who are not getting intubated, but it definitely has helped us when we're trying to wean off opioids or when we're trying to add it as an adjunct to opioids in the MICU or the SICU. Absolutely.
1: I think for me, I found some really unique cases for ketamine where it's always this case where a patient comes in for a presumed opioid overdose, and then we give a ton of sure. Narcan. And in an in-between period of like that 30 minutes to an hour, we also want to be able to treat their pain because now they feel everything. Because we gave them a ton of Narcan, and maybe they're just not getting well. So my thought process is, if I can give them a bolus and bolus them a couple of times within that first few hours, that'll give me enough time to hopefully sensitize those opioid receptors to when I give fentanyl or if I give, you know, hydromorphone. Those one, the receptors work a little better because there may be some data that your opioid receptors are a little bit more susceptible uh, to your mu agonists oh, after giving ketamine. And for me, I know that I don't necessarily have to worry about blood pressure as much for the average patient. So there are some people who my trauma team are very concerned about, you know, low blood pressure. And mm-hmm. trauma loves to get 50 of fentanyl for every <laughs> single situation. I think they believe that's what the vowel size is. So they just get 50 <laughs> yeah. for, for everything. But those are the, the unique situations I see ketamine for those patients who that the opioid receptors are not necessarily going to be, you know, ready to have Narcan, you know, dissociate from them. And if I can give them ketamine, maybe the opioid receptors may work a little better to receive uh, your, your mute agonist in the future. So uh, I use it for that, those situations or if I have a hypotensive patient where you're battling sedation and hypotension, and I feel like that's the, sure. <laughs> the grand that is, theme of them is... all. Yes, that time. is a great
0: one that I did mention. Yup, yeah, anyone who's hypotensive, people feel much more comfortable starting that ketamine. Absolutely right. Especially continuous infusions. Yes. Yeah. So yeah.
1: my shop's getting a little bit more onto it. I had a fellow ask me for it and I was like, good for you. <laughs> <laughs> You're learning. <laughs> good, for you. good for you. So I frequently transport patients from the ED to the ICU and I give pass off to the nurses and the, and the staff there. And I make sure when I pass off, I say, is there anything I can do you know, cause I'm used to making these medications, but so I can make a ketamine drip for you at the bed. So I can make these things for you. So they asked me about this and I said, man, this is a really good case to use this. And I think more people should be aware of this. If your patient doesn't have any major cardiovascular history, your patient doesn't have mm-hmm. uh, any major schizophrenia again, and sure. that can be debunked. If your patient's hypotensive, maybe this is a good, a good case, even for a short period of time. So mm-hmm. much more to, to talk about ketamine. As you said, it could be an entire topic by, by itself, yep. but there's some unique situations for it, I would say. Absolutely. Absolutely. Perfect. So I want to get to this, this next section where I've always wondered, and I've went back and forth with it, do you know, uh, is there any data to support using bolus therapy versus a continuous infusion? Now, and I'm, I'm being particular to our analgesia agents, and we can look at our our traditionally sedation agents. Do you have any data that supports that one is better versus the other?
0: That is a great question. And, you know, I don't know if I've ever found any data showing better outcomes with bolus versus continuous infusions. Um, At my site, technically in the EDs and in the ICUs, We're supposed to start with bolus Mm -hmm. dosing and only add on a continuous infusion if the patient is uncomfortable after two hours of the nurses trying bolus dosing. Now, that's in our protocol. That's in our policy. Obviously, things don't always work out that way. Um, Sometimes you have patients that need deeper sedation. In the setting of COVID, we were actually starting continuous infusions up front in our ED just so that our nurses didn't have to go into and out of patient rooms all the time. So now we're starting to shift back into patient gets intubated and we just do bolus dosing, if we can, of fentanyl or dilaudid. Um, So I haven't found any data specifically comparing the two, but we do know that there's great data showing things like overall less exposure to a drug, less exposure to fentanyl, less exposure to dilaudid, um, leads to less time on ventilators. Um, and so I think you can kind of connect the dots and say, well, yeah, if I can just give a hundred mics of fentanyl every hour, uh, PRN versus starting somebody on a uh, continuous infusion at 200 per hour for three days, um, I think you can kind of draw some logical connections. That being said, I would love to see some data on that so I can be more confident when I recommend
1: that. Absolutely. And that's one thing that comes up quite often. And I've been able to go from residency to one institution to another, and I still work uh, PRM back, at, back in Atlanta. And I get to see various styles of practice and mm-hmm. people will quote to me different data. And what we do know is this, we know that Maybe being heavily sedated is not the best best for our patients. And the SPICE studies right. uh, show that even deep sedation in the ED may be associated with some pretty poor outcomes, even uh, mortality uh, harm. So we know that. But some people get so caught up in my attending taught me this 30 years ago and I have to do an infusion or I have to do it this way. There's no data that says that we we probably should do one versus the other versus what's best for the patient and, and the mm-hmm. institution at that particular time. For me, I try to satisfy the sedation gods by giving a few boluses and my <laughs> first my first dose of uh, opioid is going to be immediately after intubation. So mm-hmm. that's usually my, my go to. And I have our shop says three boluses. So you do three boluses of something, then you move on to an infusion. So off the top, you're going to get one. If a patient's still a little agitated, I'm going to give that one more. And then after what I'm giving the third one, I'm going ahead and priming my drip at that point. Yeah, (laughs) We underestimate how challenging it is for our nursing staff to manage these patients because no one is fully staffed right now. Uh, Our nursing Mm -hmm. colleagues are going through one of the most difficult times. And it's been over a year of this type of staffing and the type of patients we're taking care of that's getting intubated left and right. So my job is to make the patient comfortable first, get them taken care of, and then make sure our staff can get the the resources that they need immediately. So I very quickly get to an infusion if I need it, but I will just not do anything if I don't have to and just base things Mm -hmm. off of our monitoring parameters.
0: Absolutely, man. Yeah, absolutely. Well said, you know, and a lot of nurses, you know, some people work at sites, for example, where you can use restraints for your patients. Mm -hmm. Some people work at sites where you can't use restraints. And what I'm talking about is just soft restraints on the bed that prevents the patient from pulling their tube out or self-extubating. So that is obviously going to play a a, a role as to, you know, do you start a continuous infusion to have your patient more sedated so that they don't self-extubate? If you can use soft restraints, maybe you're not at high of a risk as uh, other people. So then maybe you can just get away with uh, you know PRN bolus dosing as needed. So
1: there's a lot of factors that go into play. Yeah, absolutely. It's just I feel like sometimes mm-hmm. we get into cookbook medicine and you know right,
0: <laughs> right. And as pharmacists, you know we're we're all very by the book and and very anal, and we just have to accept that you know each case is different. There is no blanket statement of oh yeah. You, you have to give PR boluses for two hours before we can start an infusion. Even though that's your protocol, you still sometimes have to work
1: around it to keep your patients safe and your nurses safe. Absolutely. So we spent mm-hmm. a good bit of time talking about analgesia and we should. We should talk about the thing that we we're probably not doing the best job at. There's some data out there that supports that. You know, without some pharmacist involvement, it may take up to an hour, two hours for your patient to receive adequate analgesia. And I think that's going to be something that we we can play a big role in. And pharmacists, it's, that's our only job. We're not saying people are doing things bad, but that's our only job. Like we just take care of the meds. And for me, <laughs> uh, being in the ED, I'm right there with the meds. And that's the only thing. I don't have to place the tube. I don't have to find right. the stylet or the MAC blade. I don't have to find <laughs> the Maybe so, one day, huh? <laughs> it, you never know. But, don't let us intubate. Who knows? <laughs> provider status, baby.
0: That's right.
1: <laughs> but let's transition to sedation again. I, sure. I think sedation is going to be something that's really key, but I think one of the things we have to realize is that we need to monitor these patients. And from a JCO perspective, um, I think that's something we get caught up on quite a bit when the joint commission comes around and they audit our charts and see why did you titrate the propofol from 15 to 60 without <laughs> there being any anything documented? So, how how do we how do we monitor sedation in intubated patients? Uh sure.
0: Um so we have specific validated sedation scores. Um so when we talk specifically about sedation, we have a couple that we use. One is the Richmond Agitation Sedation Scale or the RASS. Mm -hmm. And then we also have the sedation agitation scale or the SAS. Mm -hmm. Um, So for the RAS, it goes anywhere from negative five, which is an unarousable patient comatose all the way up to positive four, which is a very extremely combative agitated patient. And what we aim for in a RAS is a score of negative one to positive one, which is somebody who's a little bit drowsy wakes up to voice is maybe a little bit anxious, but not aggressive, not combative, but also not deeply sedated. When you talk about a SAS, um, it goes from a score of one, which is again, unarousable to seven, which is again, dangerous agitation. And centers that use the SAS aim for a score of about three to four. So those are the most validated scores for specifically sedation. Now, again, you know, we talk about the continuum and the combination of pain management and sedation management. So I think we'd be doing a disservice if we didn't step back a little bit and talk about how do we monitor pain, right? Mm -hmm. Because it kind of goes hand in hand with sedation. Um, And the first thing that, you know, we should mention is that um, we should not monitor pain by looking at vital signs, right? So that's a common misconception. Oh, his heart rate's elevated. He's in pain. Um, vital signs should be used as a trigger or a cue for you to further assess for pain or for the nurses and providers and potentially pharmacists to assess that patient for pain. But being tachycardic, having a high blood pressure is not um, diagnostic for pain. Um, So in the setting of pain, actually the most validated um, scale that we can use in, in patients in the ICU is the visual pain scale. So just, you know, that smiley face, score of zero to 10. Like what's your pain, smiley face, frowny face. Um, that's actually the most validated score in the ICU, but obviously a lot of times our patients in the ICU, they can't self-report. So we do have a A little occupied. Yeah. yeah, Got a tube down their throat kind of hard to point at smiley faces. Um although if they are lightly sedated they actually probably could use the visual analog pain scale.
1: Yeah,
0: um but if you pa- yeah if your patient is sedated or or deeply sedated for whatever reason we have a couple scales one is the behavioral pain scale which goes from a scale of 3 which is no pain to 12 which is maximum pain and then we have what we use at my site the critical care pain observation tool or CPOT which is a scale from 0 no pain to 8 maximum pain. And we always try to keep our patient's pain score um, less than four. So anything significant is a score of three or greater. And just to kind of wrap your head around what these kind of scales measure, the CPOT will use things like facial expressions, the patient's body movements, their muscle tension, how compliant they are with the vent, things like that. Obviously, it's a very subjective scale that, you know, nurses might kind of differ slightly on, but it is the most validated for patients that can't say like, hey, I'm in
1: pain, you know, um, and it does work fairly well. So, yeah, I think it was cool that you went back and wanted to combine the CPOP versus the RAS. And I've done a mm-hmm. ton of education on this over the past because for the most part, let's just face it, our ER nurses, they're they're not, you know, traditionally used to doing this. They want to get the patient and get <clears throat> So let's face it, our ER nurses—they're not used to using these scales, and they're used to getting these patients and shipping them to the ICU, where we have the appropriate ratios for that type of monitoring. But I think that's something we should look at. Um, Jayco's looking at it. Um, it—is mm-hmm. the best care for our patients. So a CPAP and a RAS, which is what I'm so used to using, maybe we okay. come to the ET, ED, and I had—I yeah. had a very uh interesting okay. term. I say. Do your ass and save your ass. <laughs> that was by my teaching point for the. I'll put that staff. on my pumps. <laughs> so uh, that's just one one thing to do. You know, you know, do your ass and save your ass because when they, when people go back and look at those scores and they see you tie based off of RAS of p- plus four, it makes sense. But when you're documenting nothing, nothing to your note, it makes it a little bit more challenging. Uh, sure. So we talked about the different scores and we, we we mentioned it briefly. And I just want to highlight again that deep sedation is not preferred for the majority of our patients. Um, mm-hmm. The vast majority. There's some, some neuro patients. There are some different um, therapeutic hypothermia that these patients can probably get deeper sedation. But I would say for the majority of our patients light sedation, as you mentioned before, would arise. So he, some people say zero to negative two. Some people say negative, negative one to plus one. But in that middle yep. range where your patient's like, hey, what's right. going on? <laughs> Go back to sleep. <laughs> right. like, when right. Once they're doing right. that, that's where you want them to be versus like, right. I'm going to punch someone now. Like, exactly. I had a patient I will never forget. She was on 800 mics an hour of fentanyl, 80 of her fall, and she was on, I believe, she was like 1.4 of Presidex. And I remember I walked in the room and she like pointed at me with the tube in her <laughs> and was like, and just like flicked me off. And I was like, wow, <laughs> like I was just, I was just amazed. Like, where do we go from here? <laughs> like I was just simply amazed. Where yeah. I was sitting there, she was like trying to get out of bed while intubated. And I remember before we pushed the meds on her in the ED, she she told me fentanyl won't work. And <laughs> she didn't lie. She <laughs> did not lie. Eight hundred mics an hour. Fentanyl. Wow! So I went back. Wow. I, had, I was started in the, started her in the ED, and I went to my to my mic irritation. And I just should never ever forget that case. Mm-hmm. And just thinking to myself, mm-hmm. that's a ras of plus four. <laughs> like, yeah, like that's exactly what it. that is. Yeah. So it's like we want them to have light sedation, uh, but mm-hmm. dear God, just make sure they're they're, they're comfortable. Um, Absolutely. We talked quite a bit about the the depth of sedation. We've talked Mm -hmm. quite a bit about, um, you know, appropriate analgesia and you mentioned it briefly, but I want to make sure I highlight this term because people, you know, say it sometimes, but like, what is analgo sedation and how do you do that properly?
0: Great, great question. So analgo sedation is again, that combination of analgesia and sedation which is oftentimes provided simply by the opioid, but sometimes we do have to add other agents, right? As you know, like your patient needed a couple meds, probably could use a few more. Um, so the guidelines are very clear that we should use, like I said, analgesia-first sedation or A1 sedation with opioids as compared to using sedative hypnotic-based sedation. Now, when I, when we talk about sedative hypnotic-based sedation, we're specifically talking about Propofol or Presidex, Um, which is dexmedetomidine. And one of the main reasons why, and we hit on this, you know, at the start of your episode is because most of our patients, we said about 80% are in pain. And this is a huge reason why our patients are uncomfortable or agitated. So if you can hit those pain receptors and make them feel comfortable with the analgesia, you will actually, you know, in a roundabout way, sedate them, right? Because they're not in pain anymore and they're not going to be agitated. So that's one reason why, Um, And as I mentioned again earlier in the episode that these opioids do themselves have sedating properties. Um, I don't know if you or any of my listeners have ever had opioids. I've only had them once when I had my knee surgery. um, And when I was waiting in the PACU for, or actually, sorry, the the pre-op room, they gave me some fentanyl and Verset and I was out. I was sedated. I had no idea what was going on. I did not get any propofol or Presidex. I just got like 50 of fentanyl and I was out. (laughs) And uh, so they're very, very powerful sedatives. I know it's kind of hard to wrap your mind around that, but it is very, very true. Um, So that's analgo sedation. And when we talk about that, you know, we brushed a little bit about what level of sedation is, is recommended. And like you said, light sedation is preferred And I know that's a very strange concept. I'm a pretty anxious dude myself. I think that if I had a tube down my throat, I would just say, put me out, you know, make me a RAS negative five. But patients tend to be more comfortable on ventilators than we give them credit for. Um, And actually, that goes for ourselves too. People like me who think that they wouldn't tolerate a ventilator. Actually, you'd be surprised. There's a lot of patients that actually don't require any sedation at all. Um, you know, you had a case about somebody who was on a bunch of, of, of sedatives and analgesics and, and was still agitated. I've seen patients walk around the ICU, um, with their ventilator next to them, not on any sedation at all, like writing down what they wanted to do, where they wanted to take a walk. So we have to wrap our minds around the fact that, you know, um, sedative free ICUs exist, um, overseas and in the U S And there's a lot of work being done on low or no sedation ICUs. And they've seen just incredible outcomes with lower times on ventilators, lower ICU and hospital lengths of stay. So we have to remember that we really, really want to wake up our patients as often as we can.
1: Absolutely. That's one of the cool things about where we're at right now when it comes to the research of intubated patients, particularly when looking at this padis entire approach, because Mm -hmm. I think if we really start looking at things, there may be a a special time period where they may need that to get through their initial acute insult and then we treat their pain, and then they can get to a better place and we can sedate them just enough to get through that period of time. And then at like day two, day one, they may be, I don't have phenomenal data, but I'm thinking that we will find that one day. But we danced around quite a bit about some of the other agents, but can we just briefly talk about the, the most common agents that we use and some of like the doses and the kinetics of those particular sedation agents? Of
0: course, of course. So yeah, so moving down the guidelines and, you know, Jimmy and I probably see this every day, you know, you start with your opioid, you start with hopefully PRN, bolus dosing, you move on to a continuous infusion and guess what? Your patient's still awake, still flicking you off. All right. So where do you go from here? Um, So guidelines will say that we will use sedative agents, uh, and those are mostly propofol and Presidex. So propofol is a sedative, it's a hypnotic, it has amnestic effects, it's also an anxiolytic, and it's an anticonvulsant, so we can use it for patients that are seizing. So it's great for patients that need something in addition to the opioid. So we've treated their pain, they're still uncomfortable. All right, so now we have to sedate them down to a RAS of negative one to positive one so that we can help protect the patient, help protect the nurse. So this is a great add-on medication. Uh, propofol is also really good because it's very short acting um, and it's also readily available. So in my ED, we have Propofol vials in the Pixis or the automated dispensing machines. And a lot of times if we know, or if we're guessing that our patient isn't in too much pain, we'll actually start a propofol drip in the ED. Um, So it's readily available. You spike the vial, you hang your infusion, it's ready to go. You can always give some PRM boluses of fentanyl on top of that if you think your patient's uncomfortable due to pain. Um, But the great thing about propofol is it has such a short um, duration of action, especially if used for a... Um, short amount of time. So it's really good for those patients that you think may extubate soon. You know, if you have a tox case or somebody who you're like, yeah, this patient is probably going to be able to extubate within 12 hours or even 24 hours. Let's put them on this rapid acting, short acting medication that they can just turn off and the patient should wake up. Um, Now, of course, there are um, specific things to look out for, for these, with these medications with propofol, the biggest one is hypotension. Um, and then also something called PRIS or propofol-related infusion syndrome, uh, which can be deadly. We usually dose our propofol at 5 to 50 mics per kg per minute. I know technically the package insert goes up to 80 or even higher, but the higher you go, the higher rate you have of, of hypotension and potentially of developing PRIS or propofol-related infusion syndrome. Um, and then some other things that we have are Presidex. So Presidex or dexmedetomidine is an alpha-2 agonist. Uh, It's similar to propofol where it does have some anxiolytic effects. It is a hypnotic. It is a sedative. It has a little bit of analgesia, not as much as ketamine or obviously opioids, but just a tiny bit. Um, However, it does not have any anticonvulsant activity. And the cool thing about Presidex or dexmedetomidine is that it causes a level of sedation that actually mimics and activates our natural sleep cycles. Um, so that's good and bad. So on the good side is your, your patient, you know, can't really get deeply sedated on Presidex. So no matter how high you go, um, there's going to be a ceiling effect where you'll never get them down to like a RAS negative three, negative four, negative five. You're going to have to add on other agents. Um, but that's also the, uh, positive of it, right? Is that Um, Some ICUs and some EDs actually allow continuous infusions of Presidex in patients that aren't intubated because it has such a low risk of respiratory depression and deep, deep sedation. Um, So it's good for short and or long-term sedation, particularly it's um, beneficial in patients who are undergoing alcohol withdrawal because it kind of takes the edge off. Um, obviously, it's not the treatment of choice. You still do want to give some benzos in those patients, but it can kind of help with those symptoms. And then lastly, we have our benzos. So we have midazolam and lorazepam um, with a caveat of these are should be your last line agents for sedation. So in our order panel in my site, and also if you read the guidelines, it goes opioids. Presidex, Propofol, Benzodiazepines. Um, They have both been shown to prolong ventilation, increase ICU length of stay, and cause delirium, which we know if your patient develops delirium in the ICUs, much higher rates of mortality, especially if they're older. Um, Of course, Midazolam and Lorazepam do have their place in therapy for patients, for example, who are seizing, right? So status epilepticus. Any patients that are in alcohol or benzodiazepine withdrawal, or they're the agents of choice when your patient needs that deep sedation. And you touched on that briefly. You know, this is patients that are bucking the vent no matter what opioid or what dose of propofol you put them on. It's patients that need therapeutic hypothermia. It's patients that need paralytics where you need a RAS of negative four to negative five so that we make sure patients aren't awake while they're paralyzed. So there's definitely places in therapy for these agents, but for your run-of-the-mill average patient, they should be used last line.
1: So that that was a a mouthful of all the Mm -hmm. things that we do, but ultimately Mm -hmm. you guys use Propofol and I'm pretty sure a lot of people are very comfortable with Propofol and more so now I see a lot of my nurses asking for Prostatex as well. And my only caveat, and I like to make this analogy for my nursing staff. I think Presidex is a phenomenal drug if you know you you want lighter sedation because you're not going to go too deep. And my thought is that Presidex is watered down fentanyl and propofol put in one bag. (laughs) It gives you a little bit of anesthesia. It gives you a little bit of sedation, not too much, but it's a good combination. And for most patients, again, it can be good depending on what phase of care they're in and what stage Mm. of the, the intubation process that they're in. For your like person that's your 25 year old that comes in after having poly substance abuse that's fighting everyone, I'm not gonna put on my own prescript by itself. <laughs> right, uh, right. I'm gonna get punched. The tube's gonna get pulled, <laughs> and it's gonna be crazy. Right. I-, I like to throw that caveat out there. Spice three came out. There's not much difference when it comes to using prescript versus some of the others, but I think it's a good drug if we know it's not a savior. So I think sometimes mm. we get, especially when ED people. We jump on board and everything's the perfect drug. Ketamine was the perfect drug. <laughs> Last year, TXA was the perfect drug. Right. So we have all right. these different things that we, we jump on board with. I think we have to pull ourselves back and say, it's the perfect drug for the right patient for the right situation. And that's mm-hmm. where Prestidex comes into play. So guys, don't just call for precedex where you don't know what to do. You Mm -hmm. need to know what you're doing, Presidex, what to work correctly. Yeah. Uh,
0: And this uh, might be one reason why it's actually restricted only to our ICUs. We can't give Presidex in the ED. Yeah. So there's been cases where providers are like, I really just want a little bit of Presidex to help through this procedure or to help them with some alcohol withdrawal symptoms while we're giving benzos. And there's just nothing we can do. Um, And that might be one reason, like you said, I think it's just Maybe providers used it incorrectly in the past and were expecting this deep sedative and weren't getting anything. Uh, I don't know what led to that decision, but um, I don't know if you use it in your
1: EDs or if you are allowed to, but we are not. So I can get it, but it's. it's I mm-hmm. just don't see, for the majority of patients that I'm involved in their care, I don't see a major utility in the initial phase. Um, mm-hmm. I, if I'm boarding a patient or if I have a patient for like four or five hours, I can see the use of it then. But for me, my nursing staff, they will grab Propofol before they grab intubation meds. They love Propofol. <laughs> and it's not a, its not necessarily a controlled substance in South Carolina, so it's easy sure. to get. So mm-hmm. again, my nurses love prop. I'm, I'm, I'm a decent fan of it myself, um, but I think there's a right place for Procestex and I just haven't found it for a large percentage of my patients at, as of yet. But again, somebody out there probably loves it and will debate me and they'll probably end up in my inbox. So I'll, <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll yeah. see. But the last thing I want to touch on, um, and I think this is going to be great for our pharmacists out there, is about like, is there, we talk a lot about, you know, not giving analgesia and not giving propofol and a patient's not necessarily being completely, you know, sedated appropriately. Is there any data out there that talks about the value of a pharmacist in regard to post intubation sedation and analgesia? That's a a good
0: question. You know, I wasn't able to find anything specifically, Mm -hmm. um, but as you touched on a little bit earlier, I think we play such a big role in making sure that patients get adequate sedation post-intubation. And I think one big area actually that I'll kind of switch gears and talk about just a little bit is that rapid sequence intubation or Mm -hmm. RSI, that time around where before and after the patient actually gets intubated or gets the tube down their throat basically. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's been a recent study that came out, um, you know, in these scenarios, we give a sedative and then we give a paralytic. And now obviously the worst thing that can happen to our patients is if they um, maybe got not enough sedation and are now awake and paralyzed. So it's called ED awareness. There was a recent trial that came out that showed 3% of our patients experience being paralyzed, but awake. So not deeply sedated enough. And I think actually that this is one of the top places where pharmacists can provide benefit. And and I hope that study comes out and correct me, Jimmy, if I'm wrong. And if you know of some data, I'd love to hear it, but I think in the future, this is going to be one major, major area where pharmacists play a role. Like you said, you have your sedation ready to go right when the patient gets intubated. That's our number one job, and I think we're all trying to be better at that, you know, myself included, in making sure. All right, no matter what happens, my patient's going to be safe. They're not going to remember this. I'm going to make sure I get some fentanyl or propofol on board or dilaudid or whatever it is. And I don't know of any, you know, hard numbers. And I wish I did, but I'm guarantee that it makes a difference having that pharmacist at the bedside asking for sedation. Our nurses do a great job, like you said, of pulling meds for. Uh, sedation, but a lot of times, especially in a traumatic situation, um, nurses are busy doing so many other things that they just don't have the time to think about, oh, yeah, I, I got, I should probably use some fentanyl. Um, and I think, you know, as the ED pharmacist, this should be our number one, uh, priority for these
1: patients. Absolutely. And I was just digging just to see if I can find something. Mm-hmm. And I found a very, I got a smaller study back in 2016 and it was mm-hmm. um, it's by, actually by a pharmacist, Galvin and colleagues. And what they found is a 41 patient study, and they found that overall post-intubation analgesia increased after pharmacist intervention from 20% to 50%. And sure. during the times they actually had the pharmacist there, uh, the actual, all the actual package for novel sedation went from 50% to 85%. So it's just depending on how how you look at whether a patient got just analgesia versus um, them being initiated during those hours. It was just amazing to see that you you double plus some the numbers of patients that actually got that. So Mm. something that should be definitely looked at further and I'll make sure I attach this in the show notes. But just knowing that from a pharmacist standpoint, that's your only job. Mm-hmm. People say they get so amazed and it's like, oh, my God, you had all these drugs ready. And I was like, that's my only job. My I job. can't place a holy. <laughs> I can't I, I can't grab the seven five and, and place it in. I, mm-hmm. I don't know how to use a Mac blade again. I don't have to do those <laughs> things. The cool thing right. I get to sit back and do is watch pretty talented people do a phenomenal job of performing a life-saving intervention. And I can aid that with medication. So um, that's really all that I had for for this episode and just looking at everything. And guys, give your patients some fentanyl, give your patients some pain meds, sedate your patients enough, not enough yeah. for you to have a, a good night, not, <laughs> not enough for a patient to be deeply sedated, but sedate your patient enough. And I'll play some stuff in the show notes so that we don't get too, you know, literature heavy here, but I just want to pass it off to you again, to, and see, do you have any final thoughts for this particular topic.
0: Um, you know, no final thoughts, man. I just want to say, thank you so much for having me on your podcast, Jimmy. Uh, really, really honored to be here. As you can tell, it's a very passionate topic for me. You know, at times there, I probably rambled on a little bit and we'll try to post some things on the website and I'll do the same on mine, uh, just with those particular, like those numbers of like the RAS and SAS and the doses and things like that, that we talked about. But I think, you know, Jimmy, you, everything you said is, is exactly spot on. This is our number one job. We should be making sure our patients are safe, comfortable, our nurses are safe and comfortable while always having that patient in mind, you know, using analgesics first if we can and keeping your patient lightly sedated once they get up to the you, because we've proven time and time again that this will improve outcomes and let our patients live healthier and longer lives.
1: Couldn't agree more with that. So please give the audience, you have your own phenomenal podcast, please, anything that you... What's the best way for me to reach out to you and consume more of this phenomenal education? Thank you so much.
0: Well, we'll definitely have to have you on our podcast. But so my podcast is called the ERRX podcast or ER-RX. And we're just available anywhere you get your podcasts, Apple Music, Google, Google Um, Pandora, I have a YouTube channel that just plays all the podcast episodes on there. And then I also have a website, errxpodcast.com, where I post show notes, references for all my episodes, a quick little blurb on some key points. Uh, If you feel like you don't want to listen to me ramble on, you can just read the one paragraph, you know, quick thing of what I went through in that episode. And then I also have an Instagram page at podcast. Um, where I try to throw some funny things out, some memes. And then again, just quick little excerpts of all of my episodes and quick two or three line key points that you can just take with you when you're on rotation, if you're a student or a resident, or as a nurse provider or pharmacist, where
1: you can just quickly look things up that I have discussed on my podcast. Absolutely. And you guys go definitely go check that out. And of course, I'd like to thank everyone for Um, listening to another episode of the form so hard podcast i would definitely place this here it's probably gonna be very easy to find the material that we talked about today we're gonna blast this stuff out to you guys you know how i chop these episodes up and i give you little 10 30 minute clips to go on social media but I don't want to spend any more of you guys' time. Definitely check us out at farmsohard.com. Um, Reach out to us on Twitter, Instagram. Just Google Farm So Hard. You're going to find us. So I'm going to close it out the same way I close every episode out, guys. You don't have to work in an ED. You don't have to be a pharmacist. But everything you do, make sure you farm so hard. Closes it. Ozzy scratches head. <laughs> Whatever she's looking for, it isn't in there.